some migrant workers that were more they were traveling from Mumbai as they were traveling some of the Christian brothers sisters were part of a preaching movement of Maharashtra they were massaging their feet and feeding them and at one point one man asked why are you doing it and they shared simply Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you and we do this in the name of Jesus because he loves you and that man broke into tears and said i want that god i want the god who loves me my name is Angel Torero i want to welcome you to on mission with chris right a podcast produced by Langum Partnership. Visit langum.org to learn more about Langum. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langum.org to learn more about Langum and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as International Ministries Director for Langham. Today, we travel to India through Chris's conversation with Praveen and Veena, a husband and wife team who share a passion to strengthen the church in a region where it's dangerous to follow Jesus. As a part of Langham Preaching's pastor training movement, Praveen and Veena work together to equip and mentor grassroots pastors, all with the goal to see the trainings become indigenously led, and the thousands of new believers who've come to Christ each day sitting under faithful Bible teaching. I think you'll be blessed by this conversation. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright. And today I have the honor and great pleasure, actually, of talking with Praveen and Veena Bunyan from India, who are very old friends of mine. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Chris. This is such a pleasure to be with you on the podcast. What an honor. What a privilege. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you, sir. Praveen and Veena, we go back a long way, don't we? In fact, back to the 1980s when we met at the Union Biblical Seminary in India. But at this moment, as we're talking, uh, I'm here in London and you're there in the United States. So how has that come about? Because you don't normally live there, but why are you there now? We live in Hyderabad. Uh, every year we come to visit our kids here in States and say we did that this year. But due to COVID, we are stuck here in we, Richmond, Virginia. We've been uh, looking almost every day for the possibility of going back because that's where we, we have a center to minister and our life is right now. 
but uh, well, the, the India is not allowing uh, people to come from US right now. So we're waiting. So you're trying to get back and that will be getting back to your home in Hyderabad. Uh, isn't that correct? Yes. That's, yes. But I think before we before we go to India and hear more about your life and your work there, let's Let's start right back when the first, when the Lord first called you to faith. Uh, how did that happen? And you can answer in either order, Praveen first, Raveen, whichever. Which is, how did you come to faith, and how did the Lord prepare you for the ministry that you have? Uh, I was born and brought up in Bangalore in a godly family, and I came to know the Lord when I was 12 years old. And a year later, God called me to be a missionary. So after my undergrad studies, I worked in Richmond Town Methodist Church as a secretary there, and they sponsored me to the seminary. So that's that's Richmond Town Methodist Church in Bangalore. In Bangalore, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then, mm-hmm. and uh, Praveen, I like Veena. Grew up uh, in a very godly family. Uh, I'm fourth generation uh, Christian believer. Uh, very privileged to be that. Uh, but having grown up in a, a wonderful, loving Christian home, I went astray when I went to college of my own volition. But God has been so merciful. He did not leave me. And he met me while I was at college and uh, revealed himself to me uh, in my room. And I gave my life to Christ. And it was a, a tremendous turning moment, of course. And uh, ever since he's been helping me grow in his, in him, and what joy it has ever been. And so um, then I continued, uh, finished my master's in college, and then God called me to ministry. And so while well, I worked for a year planting churches in the rural areas, and then at that time the conviction came that I need to have further education be equipped. Came to UBS and became your student. <laughs> That's just to, to put people in the picture. Um, my wife, Liz, and I, we went to India to teach in the Union Biblical Seminary in Pune, in Maharashtra, and it was while we were there that we met you, Praveen and Veena, uh, as students. So you were indeed, as you say, my students in the in the Old Testament classes there at UBS. But... <laughs> But hey, um, you were single students at that time. So, um, you know, uh, what what happened here? God's plans. We God. fell in love. <laughs> you, you, you're blaming God, are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we are giving him the privilege of putting us together. <laughs> yeah, we came, we saw, and we were conquered. That's right. And... and and of course, by then we'd got to know you quite well as as students in the classroom and as friends in our home and uh, and so on. So, what would you say then, moving from training and coming to faith and being at UBS and then moving into ordained pastoral uh, and missionary ministry? What would you say is your driving motivation in mission? What is your heartbeat for the Lord? I think for me it is making uh, his word available to the common people and teaching the pastors and um, Bible teachers. Because without God's word being the foundation, there is no ministry. And it has been the foundation for our lives. So that's what we want to 
communicate and pass it on to the people. Uh, ministry skills can be got along the way, but the knowledge and wisdom that comes from the word of God, that is what we concentrate on. And that's what Langham has helped us do in the past few years, especially. If I may add to that, I think uh, if there were a mission statement of our lives, individually and together, it has been to build the body of Christ, to be part of that. God is building it, and we want to be part of, uh, be his instruments in building the body of Christ. And a big part of that has always been uh, proclaiming his word and to help people grow uh, in spirit and in his word. And so we, uh, that's been the driving mission for us. And in fact, what we do in India currently is exactly that. We are doing a, you know, as obeying God's will to, to help pastors, strengthen the hands of the pastors, strengthen them in theology, in the scripture, um, and, um, and, and, and to really equip them to equip the, their, their congregations that God has entrusted them with. And I, if I may go back a little bit, back to the seminary, uh, one, one thing that I can never forget is meeting uh, Reverend Dr. John Stott in the seminary in 1986. Uh, Uncle John came and preached at uh, UBS Chapel, and I still remember chatting with him in front of the library for nearly 10 minutes. This great man of God was just so simple and just talking um, like down to earth to us guys. And uh, I can never forget that. And he, he's, he's given us a couple of um, commentaries. commentaries for all the students from Bible Speaks Today and his own book, uh, uh, The Issues Facing the Church. That's, and, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah. That's yeah. a lovely memory, uh, Praveen, because uh, I remember that visit of John Stott. We were there at UBS at the time, as, as you remember. Now, you were telling me a little bit about um, your work now with Langham. So why don't you just say, as, as briefly as you can, what actually is your job title and role in the Langham Partnership now? Um, we are the regional coordinators for India with the Langham Preaching. And uh, we are uh, doing Langham Preaching level seminars, level one, two, three, with uh, different language groups in India. Right now we have uh, trained facilitators from seven different languages. Talking about languages, India has um, recognized 22 national languages and there are about 1500 languages and dialects in India. Wow. So it is considered a region in its own. Normally a, a country is not considered a region, but because of the number of languages, uh, Langham has considered it as a region. Indeed, I, I, I remember when one of the first times we came home from India and someone asked us, uh, are, you, are you able to speak Indian yet? <laughs> <laughs> and we thought, which one? <laughs> um, um, yes. And in fact, uh, where you live uh, normally in Hyderabad is in the Telugu speaking area, isn't it? And I understand that, am I right that there are something like about 80 million Telugu speakers uh, in India? Yeah, they're actually at 126 million between the two states of Telugu speaking people, Telangana and Andhra Pradesh. 
that's 120 million. I mean, that makes it a, a it would be a large country in its own right. I mean, that's almost twice the size of the population of the United Kingdom. So, and that's just one of the uh, languages Language. of India. Mm -hmm. So there are several such, uh, many such uh, language groups, Tamil, and we have a preaching movement in Tamil and then Kannada, which is actually Venus mother tongue. And my mother tongue is Telugu. For uh, as you might know, when we got married, I did not know a word of her language, and she did not know a word of my language. You know five words now. Well, now after thirty-five years, I know five sentences that I've picked up. <laughs> well, she can fluently talk in my language. But having said that, there are uh, in, uh, different preaching movements that are actually going great guns right now. But thank you so much for coming and actually giving the vision of Langham. And the core group that started from there, Uncle Daniel, Danita, Gary, uh, just took off from there. And now it's grown so much. In fact, we are currently doing so many <laughs> trainings and a lot of pitching clubs that are being formed. So it's an it's exciting time. Seven trainings yeah. currently on Zoom going on in Marathi, in Kannada, in Telugu, in Tamil, um, Northeast, and in English. Yeah, we have yeah. now... Uh, 35 local facilitators from different language groups that are trained and uh, they're, uh, they're all so well equipped to go and translate and do the training in their own languages. Uh, these people are ready to go and right now <laughs> our new challenge is learning uh, using Zoom and internet uh, but these trainings are going great guns. So e even while you're there living in the United States at the moment, uh, not that you want to be, but having to be there, you're still able to do this facilitating work through Zoom with some of these groups. And, and are they, the leaders of these language groups, are they able to conduct that kind of training with their groups as well? Yes. Yes. And, That's, and they are also learning how to do it uh, with a learner-centered kind of uh, training not just doing it by lecture. Mm. And at the moment, uh, you're in the U.S., but there was a period of your lives after you did your uh, postgraduate studies when you actually ministered in the States as well, didn't you? I mean, you, you actually spent quite a number of years in pastoral ministry there uh, in California. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about what that was like and how that contrasted with your life in India and then what led you to return to India? Why did you go back home, as it were, to serve God back there? In 93, when we came uh, to do our higher studies, we went to Biola University, did our master's. We ministered in the pastoral ministry in Pennsylvania, in Colorado, and then California. And uh, so our children grew up here in, in the studies. But there's always been this desire in our hearts, always wanting to go back and serve. And so finally, in 2013, we packed everything and just left back to India and sold whatever here. And we just uh, went there. And by the grace of God, we've completed seven years and that's our home now. And we've been ministering and, uh, and serving the church and uh, working with Langham has been the greatest privilege to be there and see the church grow. In 2011, when we went to India on a mission trip, we went to some of the villages that we had worked earlier and 25, 
30 years back in those villages, there wasn't any Christian presence. But when we went back in 2011, we found two or three small churches in small villages. And that opened our eyes to the number of uh, Christians in in the villages and in the Telugu speaking area. So we had a burden of how do we, we also found out that the some of the pastors leading them hadn't a day's training, biblical training. They were just, they like gave their life to Christ and God called them to come and share the gospel with people like them. And they planted three, four churches, but uh, apart from saying Jesus is the Lord and uh, Savior, they couldn't go take their um, congregations any further. So we felt that God was uh, showing us the need and calling us back to go and teach the, um, these pastors. And that's where Langham has helped us uh, do the training for these pastors. I think when uh, when I first met you on that uh, visit um, th that I did to Hyderabad, that at that time, way before any possibility of you working for Langham as such, you were already engaged in precisely the kind of work that Langham wants to do, which is the training of pastors who've had no opportunity for seminary training and know very little beyond the basics of the gospel to train them and how to preach and teach the Bible better. It almost sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like Paul and Timothy say, you know, teach those who will teach others and teach them to know the scriptures. So that was your heart. That's what you were longing to do. Yeah. yeah. So along with Langham, um, we also train pastors. We take them through a mini seminary training for about three to four years, giving them um, all the basics of um, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, and uh, taking them through theology, pastoral ministry, everything. Um, only thing is that they're not sitting in a classroom and writing papers. <laughs> like I made you do. <laughs> Just good. That was good. When, just to give an example, Chris, if I may, um, if I may just share the story of Johnson and Sharon, they both uh, were Hindus and they met the Lord through some preaching that they happened to hear somewhere and they just gave their lives to Christ so burning and they were so on fire for the Lord saying, we need to share, this is the only way, he is the only way. What's happening to all the people that are not relatives, friends? And they took the Bible and went to their neighboring village and just started sharing about Jesus. People came to Christ. They, they had to learn how to baptize them because there wasn't water. They put them in a drum and dunked them in the water and <laughs> baptized them. That's all they thought they knew. And this continued. And they had 20 believers and then eventually became 30, 40. They went to another village. So Johnson and Sharon ended up having 30, three or four congregations that they're pastoring with not having a single day of training. And Veena and I are equipping pastors like that. I would say 98% of the pastors we train are first-generation Christians. That they've come to know the Lord. This, this is really quite amazing to hear, Praveen. I mean, I expect that you know some of our listeners might be quite curious about this because we think you no know, India that's a Hindu country you know and uh, it used to be described as the graveyard of Christian mission you know that um, hardly any tiny 0.01% percent 
of Christians in the country. But you're telling us a very different story. And obviously, the couple you were talking about presumably are in the Telugu area, but yes. you said all over the country. So what, even up in the north and in the Hindi-speaking areas? Yes. Up in the north, they're blossoming. They're just bursting out in the villages, in the rural areas. New churches are planting. New pastors are coming out. And we, we hear from our friends, and we actually have visited with many of them. Um, you know, the image we always use is, you know, we can only give what we have. You know, if I have 10 rupees, that's all I can give someone. I don't have anything more. And many of, uh, most, I mean, almost all these pastors have, can only bring people to Christ, but they have not learned anything about the scripture. They don't even touch Old Testament. And to your grief, <laughs> to our grief, Yes. Because they think that's something in the past and something we don't need. All we need is Jesus. And we're, we're equipping them saying, no, Bible is all one story. It's the story of God, how he began and how we fell away and, and how God continues that new covenant in Jesus with us. And so it's just equipping them uh, in uh, just basic things. We don't talk about Kaiserman or Bultmann or any of that, <laughs> but we do talk about the foundational, what is scripture, and equip them how to prepare a sermon, because that is a primary ministry they have. So, so the basic need is that, in a sense, th th there's no need, as it were, for you to go and evangelize, because that's happening. They're, they're sharing the gospel. They're bringing people to faith, because Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is doing his work. But what is needed is, is the, the, the nourishing and the training and in order for people to grow with depth and yes. understanding and, and grow to maturity, which, of course, is what Paul was longing to see uh, in the churches that he had founded. That's why I say that so much of this is, is very much like the New Testament. You know, it's, a, it's a book of Acts all over again. It's wonderful. But um, this isn't welcome in some quarters in India, is it? I mean, the, 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 these dear folks who are coming to faith, particularly in very rural and poor parts of the country, must face quite a lot of opposition and persecution and struggle. I mean, tell us a bit about that as well. Yeah, they do. Um, it's not uh, easy to become a Christian in India. You give up your uh, identity, you give up your society, um, your place in society, you give up your inheritance. And sometimes they are, uh, your own family members are after your life. So they just leave the village or wherever they were born, go to a different place, but they still continue to pass on the faith that they have received. So it is difficult to be a Christian, but it has not stopped them. And when we talk to our pastors and ask what made them become a Christian, they say, what else can we do? This is true. This has given me life. And I want others uh, who believe like were my um, community members. I want them to have the same kind of life and joy. Uh, so it's really encouraging for us, third and fourth generation Christians, to see this passion for the gospel and for Christ in them. I'm just finishing up a class this just today with our Northeast friends on, um, in level one on making connection with the world. As part of that, I was asking them, what, uh, what are some of the challenges today in the world <clears throat> we face? To a person, all of them are talking about the religious persecution, <clears throat> excuse me, the persecution that's growing in India currently. Uh, it just, uh, we are 
India is ceasing to be a democratic country uh, because it's just uh, not valuing uh, minorities, not just uh, ignoring them, but it's actually now aggressively attacking churches. And so for someone to become a Christian has always been difficult. But now it is not just difficult, it is all life-threatening. Yeah, becoming and dangerous it, as well. Yes. Dangerous. Johnson and Sharon, when they became Christians, their family disowned them. They lost all the inheritance, what little they had, uh, half an acre of land, which is livelihood for a whole lifetime for them. They lost everything. But they continued, uh, persevered. And unfortunately, uh, two years ago, uh, of the two children they have, their eight-year-old daughter died just for, for fever. They could not even give medical attention in time. And all the relatives blamed them because they were unfaithful to their ancestral gods. And I was so, we were so concerned for them that they would, whether they would waver in their faith, but they did not. Praise be to God. And that's just one example. They stayed so faithful and glorifying God. And when we asked them, almost like Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. And that's how they, all these pastors are pursuing. Praise God. So with the, in a sense, the traditional kind of persecution and opposition that was always there, and then the increasing more recent political uh, hostility towards uh, the Christians in the community. Do you feel that that is a, a threat in any way to the kind of work that Langham Preaching does um, in the training? Uh, or is that still able to carry on, as it were, without much hindrance? What, what's the situation for the work of Langham in the country? Overall, uh, when we work with the pastors at this point, it is still safe. And so we are doing our best to equip them to be stronger in uh, proclaimers of God's word. And, uh, and, and and with all the equipping that they could receive. And the whole idea is, and they're, they're all excited to go pass it on to others. One of the things we told them, you know, this process is slow, take your time, but they cannot wait. They were like the horses, a chariot ready to rush out <laughs> because they see the need out there. Yeah. They see so many people, so many churches, and they re we realize how much we have not done the right thing uh, we've just been sharing whatever comes to our mind and not really going to the scripture, to the word of God and hear what God is saying and proclaim it faithfully and relevantly. And people realize and then now they find, oh, this is so easy to do. And uh, there is this wow moment that we see. It's wow. Even I can train others. <laughs> and that's the excitement that we find among the people that we can barely hold them down back. It, it, it's such a wonderful thing when things happen, in a sense, from the bottom up rather than being imposed from the top down, isn't it? I mean, it, it grows much faster. It's, it's much more effective uh, because people feel this, these are our people. This is at our level. It's not something that we're being asked to do from you know, people up there. So yeah. that's wonderful. Um, you're a couple um, in this ministry. Do you find this is unusual? Um, and particularly asking Vina, I mean, as a woman in this kind of ministry, is that accepted or does it in any way clash with the culture? And how do you, how do you, how do you find being um, a husband and a wife in this kind of work in ministry? It is very unique. Um, people's eyes are open when we both stand up to teach or both stand up to preach because we usually do that. And in the church, it is not um, 
very common to see a couple minister together. And when we teach our pastors, we say, bring your wives too, because they are the ones who are doing the work when you are not at home. <laughs> they are the ones who are caring for your congregations. They are the ones who are organizing the prayer meetings and everything else. So by ministering together, we are, uh, no matter how much you teach them about um, man and woman being created equally in the image of God, just by doing together, it, it speaks volumes to them. And we see our pastors now being um, confident and the pastor's wives actually taking more responsibility and leadership roles. So it has helped our pastors That's uh, good. to do this. To visually see us together teach together side by side and um and often she does of course she's the better teacher than i am and that's hands down no doubt but people can see that because i know that when i come back next session and ask them what do we remember from the last session they'll say this 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 everything that veena taught and i'm trying to nudge them to say do you remember we also learned this they give a blank look and once when i mention that to my brother my brother says is God telling you something? Shut up and let it talk. <laughs> but yeah, see, uh, it's good for people to see that. Yeah, you're, you're not only one flesh in marriage, but you're also one in spirit in, in, in the Lord's work. I'm just wondering whether, you know, what Apollos learned, because he became a great teacher, but he had some of his theological education in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, uh, there in Ephesus, who are very clearly a couple who worked together because their names are always put together uh, in the book of Acts. And you feel, well, they must have been a model as well uh, of a godly married couple who were teaching and training others, who were supporting the Apostle Paul, who helped to train Apollos, who then went on to teach and train in, in Corinth in Europe. So there's plenty of biblical precedent, I think, also for, for what you're doing together. Especially in Indian context, Chris, where women for centuries have been have been looked down by the society are treated not just treated down actually they are not even at the level of human beings they're they're because of hindu religion you can, a woman is at the bottom line and then uh, a woman in, cannot attain salvation if she is not reborn as a man that's hinduism very wow. clear a woman yeah. has to be by her good works be born in the next birth as a man and the sad part is somehow that has percolated into the church. And it's, uh, you know, instead of standing against it, you know, we, in general, I'm talking about, there are a few places where that is uh, being, you know, won over. Uh, but overall, in, if you look at it, you know, women's leadership is not accepted or seen as they can be instruments of God's grace, love, and word. And so I think this has been a great blessing that uh, for us to be together and minister together, uh, people definitely in India make a big note of that and say, hey, especially women come forward. And Langham Women's Forum has helped that in actually addressing that with, um, do you want to talk about the Women's Forum, Langham? That was the women's forum that took place in Cyprus, I think, was it? In Cyprus, yes, last year. And we have actually, uh, the Asian women from Langham have all actually put together a, a book 
about how women um, preachers what their what they face in their own communities and how they have overcome that and it, it's an interesting book i i hope i get to read it someday <laughs> so do i yes it sounds great Let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about about uh, life in India as such. Now you um, live in, and come from Hyderabad, and one of the things that Hyderabad is most famous for is its food. So, you know, tell, give us something of a flavor or taste of Hyderabadi biryani and <laughs> Mughlai food and so on. Well, you know, is it all the same? Is it all just hot curry or what? Oh, you're getting my water mouth fit already. I'm missing Hyderabadi biryani now. <laughs> yes, Chris. Hyderabad uh, is so good with its flavors and mouth-watering. And uh, if you actually go to the right restaurants, they, they can be good food without too much spice. And uh, But uh, yes, I think uh, the flavor uh, of the food is such a big thing. Uh, about what we take pride and joy in. And also the way we eat with our hand, uh, the idea is that all your senses need to be part of your food eating experience. Your nose with all the flavors, with your mouth burning with the spices, eyes looking at the colors, and your hand with the touch of the food, you mix it and put it in your mouth. Uh, my, I can barely wait to go back. Uh, but that's... <laughs> and just as the food the people's culture and language and the way they dress is also very different so it is always very colorful i enjoy just sitting somewhere in a marketplace and watching people because there's you can never find a single um, a sari repeated in any of the stores or among the people they're all so different and colorful and then i come here to states sorry to say and walk into a mall all you see is a see are grays and browns and blacks. dark greens and blacks <laughs> this is so good to hear something positive and joyful i mean i was going to ask you that question because so often when you know we in the west think of countries like india and other parts of what we call the majority world, we, we think inevitably of, you know, the poverty and the suffering and uh, the degradation and dirt and all of those sort of negative things that people see on their television and so on. And, and those are true. We don't ignore them. But, you know, what are some of the, the, the things for which you thank God that you are Indian, things that are evidence of the grace and love and goodness of God in Indian culture, not not Christian, but just India as such. What, what do you love about your country? For me, the thing that stands out a big part is the sense of being a community, sense of caring for each other. Uh, when somebody is hungry, the whole community comes around. They know it. And they come around and they care and share what little they have. And you, if, I, if we happen to go, not just because we are from the city or anything, anybody comes, passing a stranger passing through the village and happens to, you know, it's late night, they stop, and the people may not have much, but they would give the best cot, uh, sleeping bed, and uh, the mosquito net, and everything that they have. The best they have, they would give to a stranger. Hospitality. Hospitality. And the stranger may never come back that way but they have the care and love for that. And that sense of sharing what little we have generously 
and the people are happy. There's so much laughter. And sometimes it's a bit too much. It's too loud. You know, after being away from in in US sometimes and you go back, we find it so loud. But the beauty is people are joyous. Small things make them happy. And so the colorful, strong smells and a lot of laughter and joy and the way they care for each other, especially this COVID-19 situation with this coronavirus spread, what I'm seeing is uh, people who are willing to go out of the way um, to really help. Uh, the, one of the things uh, that we biggest problems we are facing is the migrant workers from the cities who are traveling on foot because they all came from the villages to the cities and now everything is shut down since March 24th, restaurants, hotels, shops, only things that are open is the small grocery stores on the streets, not the big malls. So all the migrant workers that have come in so many hotels, they, they have no work. They have no place to stay because they had to lock up the hotels. They used to stay in the basement. Now they don't have a place. So they're, they're stranded in the bus, bus depots and railway stations. And then they finally, out of hunger, they're walking. We're not talking about a few miles. We're talking about hundreds, hundreds of miles and kilometers, no public transportation, they're walking. And I've seen pictures of the people's foot just totally uh, uh, eroded layer after layer. I mean, they're putting water bottles as shoes because they don't have any more slippers or shoes, bleeding. And people carrying each other because the other part of their mother are they're not able to walk any longer. The migrant workers, it's just uh, very horrendous. But the beauty is as they pass through a town or a village, People stop them. I've seen people in the pictures massaging the feet and legs of these strangers that they have never done. If I'm not talking about Christian church, I'm talking about as a society. And, and, and so it's just a heart uh, warming to see that kind of a care. Just praise God for this. I'm sorry. I'm just yes, going on here, but I'm so excited yeah. to share the community that's coming around. I wonder if I could come back to where we were just a moment ago, because we were sharing really both the best of India and in some levels, you know, the worst in terms of what COVID coronavirus has done to the poor and the migrant workers. What does mission mean in in that tremendous breadth of reality, everything of the image of God in ordinary human beings who don't know Jesus, but in some sense respond out of just sheer humanity at one level. Uh, And yet, at the other hand, a continent where so many people have never heard the name of Jesus, don't know Jesus. Uh, uh, And so, well, how does mission engage with this combination of um, goodness and evil, um, society and, you know, spiritual realities, the need for people to know the truth and yet also show the truth. As you minister and, and in a sense, do the Great Commission by teaching, as Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, so you're the teaching side of the Great Commission. But how do you envisage mission as such in India and in your context? I think uh, what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman Um, to go down to their level to see what their need is. And when you can show that you understand 
their need and pro give provide for that need people are more open to hear why you're doing this and then can step forward to listening to what else you are willing to share with them so i would say that would that that would be the model that i would go forward with and i think the church is doing a tremendous job in proclaiming both word and sharing god's love in action and especially in a time like this just to throw an example uh, some migrant workers that were more they were traveling from mumbai via nagpur they were going to orissa northern part as they were traveling some of the christian brothers sisters were part of a preaching movement of maharashtra uh, i saw the picture they sent me the pictures and the stories they were massaging their feet and feeding them and at one point one man asked why are you doing it they shared simply jesus loves me and jesus loves you and we do this in the name of jesus because he loves you it's beautiful and that's all they did and that man broke into tears i saw the video that man broke into tears and said i want that god i want the god who loves me and uh and then they told me about how he's he later further went on to oria orissa oria and his home and he said i'm going to go and worship this god i want to get to know this god and he sent a message from he took their phone number and sent a message he said i i sat in a church for the first time in my life and when you hear this you know you begin to see what an what a privilege to share god's love just because they are made in the image of god they are a fellow being no and, and 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 in a country where there are literally millions of gods yep. and yes. people say here's a god who loves me gosh that's new Yeah. <laughs> um then then I I want something of that god. I I met somebody in in Orissa who who when I was talking about God's justice uh, and from the story of Naboth and Ahab and so on and Elijah uh, he said I want that god. He said that you know that's the it, it's the god who 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 has compassion and justice and love for the needy and the poor. If there is such a god he said I I never knew such a god existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is there is a, an attractiveness about uh about the truth of god the mission of god in in those circumstances that that's that's beautiful 1.4 billion people what a harvest field we have in india well exactly and and it's amazing that as you know when you reach out to people with the love of jesus the holy spirit does his work and and people come to jesus i mean how surprising is that it's it's <laughs> it's, it's just what jesus said isn't it? you know let your light so shine among men they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven uh, there's something very basic and very intuitive about that i wonder if uh, if we could just come to this fact that as we said earlier that obviously you now live mostly and work in India but you have lived and worked and pastored in in the United States so what is your view now of the church in the states in the west uh, you know as, as you look at a church that's exploding in India and in other parts of the majority world uh, and then we look at the church in the west and we would long to see something like that so how do you see the church in the west and what kind of message would you feel that the church in india has to bring to our churches in the west i believe the church is 
here have uh, we have becoming more complacent in so many ways and it's nothing new but it's just growing and in fact uh, just i think three years ago usa for example was considered not counting europe but considered is considered as the most unchurched christian communities most people claim to be christians but they don't want to belong to a church and that's just been growing for some time and it just escalated. Uh, but what's beautiful in the church in India is that no matter how little they have, what small church they have, how much persecution there is, they do not cease to gather to worship a living God. And they do not cease to invest in what little they have for God's kingdom. And I pray, I mean, it's not that there is no nominalism in, in India too, there is. Uh, but I think in general, when we look at it, the church it, with its little resources is willing to stay alive and vibrant. Uh, and I think we have much to learn from that church about what it means to be a body of Christ. What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but not be isolated, <laughs> but be integrated as a community of people of God? Uh, what does that mean? I think uh, India has much to teach us in that sense as a church and also caring for each other. You know, in, the, in, the, in this postmodern world, you know, we have become what's right for me is right for you. What's right for you is right for you. And what's good for me is good for me. What's bad for you doesn't have to be bad for me. And uh, in that sense, uh, you know, we, for, we forget often there is a meta-narrative that covers the, the God and the God of plan. God has a plan and God, and that's something that uh, Indian church has not lost, thanks be to God, because they recognize it affects all of us. And uh, I think we have much to keep our eyes open for that. It's also a praying church. Uh, because of the persecution, there's so much emphasis on just depending on God, praying together as community. I think we're losing much of that. We're losing family prayers here. We are in, in the West, we are forgetting what, what the blessing of being intimate with God and with as a family, as individuals. Um, so uh, I think some of those things and many of those things, the generosity, the hospitality, uh, are wonderful gifts that uh, we see in the early church, we see in the church in India. Uh, it has got very little. Its uh, resources are being depleted because they've not been gathering for months now. And I see uh, the pastors in very dire situation in India, Chris, because most of these pastors, I'm not talking about the mega big church pastors. I'm talking about majority of pastors. They depend Major on weekly. Denominations. Uh, they, don't, they depend on weekly offerings and they have none, nothing. And they have no other job. And they have families to feed, children to feed, and they have nothing. Uh, but their faithfulness is amazing. And I pray that we will stand together with those courageous brothers and sisters in India, those pastors who are struggling, but yet being faithful and courageous, that we will pray for them. And I pray that the church in the West would invest in the kingdom of God in, in sharing the resources. Uh, in equipping those pastors, in coming alongside. And I just would want to challenge, I don't want to miss this opportunity to say, you know, Langham is doing this foundational work. And I pray that people in the West would rise up. You know, God has given us plenty here. 
And you know, we, we're not that we are millionaires, but we have plenty and plenty to spare. And I pray that we will rise up for the God's kingdom and, and join hands with uh, what God is doing through Langham in India. And I pray that that would come through. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Veena, did you do anything to add to that of what the church in India can teach? I mean, Praveena said, you know, the, the seriousness of their faith, the dependence upon God, the willingness to suffer and yet persevere. These are, these are such things that we, we, we know very little about in, in the comfortable Western churches and the whole. I think that is it. That's the main, main point. But when we talk church, it's not the denominations, the Church of South India or the Methodist Church or the Lutheran Church. All these people have, are all independent churches. I mean, they are not connected to any of the mega churches. And um, being independent, but also dependent on each other as Christians, coming together, uh, just because of their faith and spreading the gospel. We don't see that in the denominations here mm. in the West. We are so divided by our denominations. But the Christians in India are learning to come together mm. uh, and stand together, mm. no matter what their denomination we like to major in the, I think, uh, to summarize what I think, being, uh, I know what she's saying in my heart too, that burns, uh, because sometimes we, we major on the minor issues here. You know, we major on the doctrinal differences and we know we try to make, and there are, they're important, but sometimes we forget how uh, critical it is for us to be joined together as fellow believers in the kingdom of God and uh, be a body of Christ in the whole nation. I think there's much to learn. Yeah. My, my heart went out when, when you talked about those pastors who, in the current circumstances, literally have nothing. You know, the, the nothing's coming to them. And I, it reminded me of a, of a friend also from, from All Nations who was in Burundi uh, and Rwanda shortly after the terrible things that happened there in past years. And he met someone by the roadside who had lost his whole family and his house and everything in, in the genocide. And this friend asked him, you know, how was he doing? You know, how would he cope and he said, I never knew that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. Mm. Which I think is, uh, teaches us something in the West. Thank you, Praveen and Veena. God bless you. Thanks for being with you. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. This was wonderful. So wonderful. What a blessing to be able to draw near to God's people in India through Veena and Praveena. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.